COVID Diaries, a radioactive special series, is made possible in part by a grant from Utah Humanities. For past episodes in this series, visit krcl.org. For this episode of COVID Diaries, we're talking about Asian American Pacific Islander communities of Utah. As we watch the horrific headlines nationally on hate crimes toward those communities rise, sometimes the sentiment here in Utah has been and continues to be that we are immune to it. Here's Sherry Wood, mayor of South Salt Lake, almost doubling in percentage of Asian population of any other city in the state. I reached out to our police chief to try to understand just in case there's information coming in other areas of the city. We haven't seen an increase in hate crimes that are being reported by Asian Pacific or Asian Americans, but it's also possible that these crimes are underreported. Considering such a huge spike nationally, are you surprised by that? I can't really say. I do know that we stand in solidarity in support of all of our underrepresented communities, um, whether that has helped them feel a part of our community or maybe our community isn't experiencing the same thing that's going on nationally uh, because we do have a very welcoming community that's used to being very diverse and and that we deeply care about the safety and well-being of everyone who lives, works, and worships here. Unfortunately, hate is alive and well here in our Beehive State. This past week, local Asian-owned restaurants and number of Asian-American residents experienced threatening voicemails, notes left under their residential doors, letters of hate received in the mail. For those that think those letters are single, out-of-the-blue incidents and don't believe that hate crimes happen here regularly, I reached out to some of the local Asian-American community members about their personal experiences this past year. Back in May about, you know, a month and a half into lockdown. Jenny Hong is a first-year graduate student. She's Korean-American, born and raised in Salt Lake City. I was actually driving to the pharmacy, pulled up to a traffic light, and had, I had my window down, and there was actually a guy that pulled up next to me, um, and he started yelling at me through the car window. And he's like, hey, hey, China, what do you have to say about the coronavirus? It always kind of catches you off guard. You always think, oh, I would have said this or done this in retrospect. But in the moment, I just kind of felt a sense of fear. So I just kind of didn't make eye contact and rolled my window up. And then the light turned green, and then I kind of had to pull over and just kind of process what had happened. I would say that I experienced that growing up when kids would tease me and say, like, go back to your country, or even in the service industry when you have customers who genuinely think they're paying you a compliment when they tell you your English is good. I'm like, well, why wouldn't it be? I was born here, you know? And so the idea of being a perpetual foreigner isn't anything new, but I do feel like the backdrop of COVID, it's um, that much more toxic and harmful. This is Paul. Paul is also Korean-American who has lived in Salt Lake over 10 years now. I was with my kids in Sugar House last August, and um, they were in the park and I went for a run and a truck... Um, swerved into me and revved its engine. And they were like, get the fag in the hat, get the fag in the hat. And just two weeks ago on a Sunday, as I was driving home, a woman came out right out against the sidewalk and threw rocks at my van as I drove by on State Street and shouting at me, go home. I thought, I, I am trying to get home. <laughs> you know, a year and a half ago, I was in one of our wonderful brew pubs with a bunch of friends and this drunk guy came up and 
sat kind of with us and was staring at me and wouldn't stop staring and finally said, he said, I'm from the South. I just moved here from Georgia. I said, oh, great, you know, welcome to Salt Lake. And he said, we hate you people. We, we can't stand you people. And thank goodness the people that I was with were wonderful and stepped in and asked him to leave. And he ended up getting kicked out of the bar. What kind of food are you eating? Stephanie Nguyen is half Vietnamese and half African-American woman born and raised in Utah. Why does your eyes look like that? Why do you eat with chopsticks? Do you eat dogs? Do you eat cats? Being raised, I was always cautious by my family about, just like African-American families, being cautious about getting, um, putting too much spotlight on yourself or making sure that you're in a good standing space to be safe. But there, that, that fear was already there outside of COVID to not attract any attention to yourself because of uh, your racial identity. Rosie Nguyen, the anchor of 7 p.m. newscast on the ABC News here in Utah, was born and raised in Salt Lake City. She is Vietnamese-American. My family, we have light respiratory struggles when it comes to really, really bad air days. And it's tough because for us on those days, we just, we cough, right? We clear our throats, we have stuffy nose. And if we're out in public, it's like we're scared to just cough or clear our throats, or like make a sniffling noise with our nose because the looks that we get. I remember standing in line at the grocery store to check out, and there was a woman that was standing two feet, and then there was a, another woman standing two feet in front of me. Bad air day. And I remember like just <clears throat> clearing my throat, getting that phlegm out of my throat. And I remember her turning around, looking at me, and then moving to a different line. Sadly, those sentiments often start early on. Here's Rosie again talking about some of her childhood memories in Utah. Growing up, there were all these microaggressions that came towards me. My mom used to pack me lunch. I love my mom's food. Who doesn't love their mom's food? And one time, I was so hungry that I ate it before I got to school. I opened it on the school bus. I just thought, oh, I'm so hungry today. I'm just going to open the Tupperware and just have a bite on the school bus. And I remember all the kids around me just said, something stinks. Something stinks on the school bus. And then they started talking like, where's that smell coming from? And they all turned around and looked at me as I'm like eating my food. And they're just like, why are you eating? It's so stinky. Like, how could you eat that? And I just remember feeling so ashamed and closing my Tupperware, putting it away and going home to my mom that day and saying, mom, I don't want you to pack me lunch anymore. One time, me and two friends were walking in downtown Salt Lake City. A white man came up to us and started speaking Chinese to us. I don't know how he knows how to speak Chinese. Maybe he was a missionary. I don't know. In perfect English, I said, sir, I, I'm not Chinese, so I don't understand what you're saying. And he just kept saying it to me. And at that point, I knew it was a jab. The problem is I cannot change how I look. I cannot change the assumptions that those who see me um, have. I've always thought to myself, how do I make myself look more American? I have photos all throughout high school and college of me dyeing my hair blonde. How do I do my makeup so that my eyes look bigger, so that I look more westernized? But I was thinking about how do I change myself as if it was my fault. There is no way to look American. Like being white, blonde hair, blue eyes is not what American looks like. It was that realization that we are a melting pot. And we have all sorts of different hair colors, eye colors, look, shape, weight. It was that realization that helped me get past that. This is Shandara Chun, better known as Chu. 
Cambodian-American, born and raised in Provo. Chu is a DJ, part of Salt Lake dance and arts community. That's interesting because with everything going on, I realized that I suppressed a lot of my childhood because of it. It's something that I'm coming to grips with, the fact that I was very embarrassed and ashamed of my heritage and culture growing up. In Provo, I didn't have anybody that looked like me. I remember hating my skin color. My face was very different from everybody else. And in my school, there was maybe three other Asians in the entire school. It was a challenge. When we would have our ceremonies, we'd show up and dress um, in our Cambodian clothes and you know, we'd go to the temples, but anytime we would stop at a gas station or go into a grocery store, I was very embarrassed. I didn't want people to point and laugh at me. And all I wanted to do was belong. As kids and teenagers, I think that's a, a huge thing is feeling like we don't stand out and feeling like we're not outcasts in society. And I hate to use color, but here are the white kids and here are the colored kids. And so there was maybe three or four Asians, uh, some Polynesians, uh, Hispanics. To tell you the truth, I think maybe like one or two Blacks. And that was it. So it wasn't even like, hey, you're Asian. It was more, you're colored, you're not colored. That's a tough thing that I'm kind of realize and re-remember now getting close to 40 and finally facing that. I remember the boldness of the kids. Here is Paul again. I can remember one instance in second grade and kids were chasing us home and throwing rocks at us and shouting at us all the way to the front door to the point where I thought, great, I'm going to be safe. And my mom opens the door. I'm standing next to her. And these kids are standing on our front lawn, continuing to yell and to shout and to throw things. And I just remember that standing out going, wow, you're pretty bold. You know, pulling the eyes and saying chinky, chinky, chong, that was every day trying to make fun of what I ate, asking if I know Kung Fu happens once a year. So I just felt like I never fit. This is Stephanie Wynn Lake again. Like I never fit anywhere. I wasn't what those people consider black enough because I was so Oreo. And then in the Vietnamese culture or the Asian culture, it was just very hard because I was not Asian enough. I have this model in my life that anything that is hard in your life, when it comes to your identity of any kind, the way you look of any kind, and how those perceived you around you of any kind, you either can take it turn around and embrace all of it, or you can try super hard to gear away from it so you can fit in. I already know what it's like to be on the other side. Now I'm okay with not being on that side. And so I am very proud to be an Asian African-American woman. I'm not okay that six women got gunned down and hurt. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay. I'm seriously not okay with that. That is exactly what my family always cautioned us with being safe. If someone makes fun of you about your race, let it go. Like that's what we were told. I was told to walk away. Like I'm 25. I've been told to be meek, be gentle, softness spoken to this happening. Absolutely not. There's no way I'm staying quiet. That's so not okay. When you have children, if you have children, do you think you'll raise them the same way? Do you think you'll tell them to be quiet and gentle and just let it go because of that fear of like just making sure that they're okay? Or do you think you're going to tell them something different? Oh, this is such a personal question and it digs, it actually keeps me up at night every day. This conversation, I always tell myself, no matter who I marry, my kids are going to come out looking some other way, not normal in, in the United States. And I 
get scared. If they're going to be talked to or like how I was talked to as a young kid, man, I would be really worried for them to try and stick up for themselves. At the same time, I think to myself, I don't want them to act on fear because if they act on fear, then their whole life, they're going to try and gear away from it like I have been. Because I feel like I'm still navigating that. Like, how do I tell people that's offensive without teaching them or just telling them it's offensive? When I was a young father, 9-11 had happened. And here's Chu again. I hated to see the hate in the world. And it's something that I really wanted to change. And now in 2020, 2021, the quiet Asians are now the targets. We've been quiet for so long. And so it's just time to really speak up and not hold my tongue anymore not cause trouble instead of not wanting to cause trouble. Growing up, we were raised with the fact that don't raise your voice because we are a guest in this country. Like they can kick us out anytime. It's almost like me coming over to your house. I want to respect your house. So we live with this undermined mentality of, okay, we're here. Thank you for letting us live in your area. And then if we speak out, then you're just going to kick us out. That's almost a threat that is used as well, whether, you know, go back home, you know, go back to China or There's lyrics to this song that has been really speaking to me this week. And uh, it's a group called Blue Scholars. They're a hip hop group out of Seattle. The lines say, I walk like Herbie Hancock with prosthetic limbs. Who killed Vincent Chin? Was it them? Was it us? Not giving enough of a fuck to stand up. That's us being silent. Did we murder him by being complacent? And that was 40 years ago. And, you know, if we were to stand up and rise up back then, bigger, more collectively, you know, not just Asians, but everybody together, would we still be fighting this fight today? Are those choices that I've made wrong to where our children have to fight that fight today? Here is Paul again. I don't know what the right reaction is. I have felt enough empathy. I have felt from people wanting to connect with me. And I have felt very grateful for people saying they want to hear my story. And yet doing of any action is the piece that's missing for me. Having actual change, meaning action, is where I am now. My frustration personally is there are statements everywhere, inclusion statements by individuals to organizations, and what use are these statements? I'm beginning to rethink my pacifist ways. I'm beginning to rethink being civil. I'm beginning to feel like maybe if I stand my ground, The next time I feel threatened by a white person, protect me and my family, that if 50 people like me do that, that will be change and people will wake up. I lived enough places where I've heard people saying it's a process, Paul, it's a process. And there needs to be education. There needs to be understanding. And I'm sick of the process of hearing. And it's true. It's a true statement. It's a wonderful statement that buys other people in charge the time to do nothing. Oh, you know, we're working on it. Oh, you know, this is really difficult. You know, we're better off than we were yesterday. All those can be true. And yet I have to figure out, tell my kids, yeah, hey, just be careful. Uh, That kid's yelling at us. I don't know. I look back at all the philosophies and beliefs that I've had and the heroes of my life and thought nonviolence and all that good stuff. And I thought, well, maybe change is violent. The challenge that I feel recently is I, I feel like I'm lucky that I've surrounded myself a community that are so loving, so kind, so generous, so well-read, so educated. When comments or actions happen within that environment, that to me makes me just say, all right, well, 
there's literally nothing. There's no article that I could send you because you read them all. And yet let's look at where we are and what hasn't changed over the years. The hypocrisy of we want to be inclusive, we want to be diverse, and yet we're not inclusive and we're not diverse. And what do I say when everyone's intent really, truly is fantastic and wonderful, and yet I go home and shake my head and feel like, whatever. Sadly, not only Utah has been experiencing hate crimes toward Asian Americans since the pandemic, but the prejudice has a long history in Utah and is deep-rooted. It needs to be addressed as such if we want to eradicate it. So what is a hate crime? I spoke with Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill. The history of hate crime in Utah is really kind of fascinating. Uh, a group of us and different folks who were advocates for this, it really was a labor of 20 years. Uh, it took us 20 years uh, to actually pass legislation that is something we as prosecutors could use. And we had a hate crime statute in name only, uh, but it actually, in effect, was uh, absolutely worthless on the paper that it was written on because it made it almost nearly impossible uh, the way it was structured for us to prosecute. Two years ago, we fi finally passed the law that we as prosecutors can use. We changed it. We call it a victim selection bill because it actually captures that you are targeting a particular victim based on an animus that you may have based on their status as LGBTQ+, uh, based on their race, based on their ethnicity, etc. So the reason it was important was that it allows us to, one, say that it is um, targeting a particular individual and that we can uh, enhance uh, misdemeanor offenses. And the reason it was important, and this is what we have to explain to people, that when you commit a hate crime, it's different than any other crime. Because people say, well, if somebody punches you, uh, you know, that's a crime. Yes, it is. But there are three victims in every hate crime. The person that you target, the injury that you cause to them, but also the, uh, the injury to the community that they belong to because you send a chill of fear that ripples through that community. So the second victim is the community that they belong to. And then the third victim is ultimately us, where in a free society, uh, we allow this crime to happen without any kind of articulated accountability. So in this last two years, since the law has changed, have there been a lot of prosecutions? Do people report more because they feel like there might be uh, justice served. How has that affected the numbers, the actual cases? That last point that you make is the first one that I want to address, because here's one of our challenges. Since it was not the experience of our community to be able to look to hate crime as a remedy because we didn't have a law. So one of the challenges that we do have, which is also historically true for victims of hate crime, is that getting our people to recognize that you can call 911, talk to your police officer who in the past could not have addressed that issue, can now do so, is the first barrier we want them to overcome. The second thing is, as the law went into effect, our prosecutors certainly are looking much more closely in our screening process, and we have had cases that have come up, but not in the numbers that is actually indicative of the actual problem, because many communities of color are still uh, reluctant to report that and also changing the behavior of law enforcement for them to understand 
that if you're speaking to an African-American and you should explore a little bit more if they were targeted for that crime, is the virus that has directed itself on AAPI today. But, you know, last week it was Muslims. It was LGBTQ+. It was our trans brothers and sisters. It's the sexism and, uh, and misogyny uh, exercised against women. And also unique to the Asian American uh, and Pacific Islander community, targeting of women. Women are more likely, 2.3 times more likely in the AAPI community to be harassed than men in the community. And, uh, and so when you see what happened in Atlanta, that is a convergence of sexism and racism uh, and, and misogyny and, and uh, that is occurring over there because uh, that actually captures uh, uh, some of the data that nationally we're seeing in AAPI communities. And even like positive stereotypes. Here is Jenny Hong again. And then kind of looking at the long history of how Asian women are portrayed in the media as like submissive. There's a long history of like exoticism, fetishism, it kind of really stirred up a lot of complicated emotions inside of me. And it had me kind of reflect on my experiences, you know, 17 years working in service, working in restaurants and bars. There's an element, being a female, working in the service industry, there's a little bit of harassment that you're going to have to endure. I don't want to say endure, but that you experience. But the added layer of being an Asian American woman and having men say something in the context of my race, you know, oh, you're like a little China doll or something about the shape of my eyes being exotic or things like that. And it's like, if I don't like those comments, I'm made to feel like I should take that, like being told that I'm exotic as flattery. So I think that was kind of hard for me to unpack and really have to process. No, that's actually, I don't like that. That's not flattering. Do you feel more confident to stand up for yourself, even though the stereotypes still exist? I do now. You know, I was pretty devastated this week really having to process all these things and talking to some of my other Asian American friends and my sister and my mom. I don't want to, there's an anger inside me, but I definitely now feel more compelled to definitely call it out when I see it and stand up for myself. And if I don't like something, if it's inappropriate, just, just to name it in that moment. Virus is exactly the same in all of this. It's just that right now the attention is on AAPI communities. And that is why it's so critical that allies speak up for each other because ultimately it's about all of us. And we have to sort of lend that support to those different communities because tomorrow they may be coming for us. And in the past, they have come for us. Anti-Asian hate crime in 16 of America's largest cities increased 145% in 2020. While Utah was not listed as a top state for reports of hate crimes, as last week's letter showed us, Utah is not immune to the anti-Asian hate that's happening across the country. 